Welcome to Elevations, new perspectives on science, technology, education, and the arts. I'm your host, Amy Reynolds. We're talking with comedian, writer, director, and Kent alumnus, Steve Byrne. He's a veteran of comedy clubs, tours, the series Sullivan and Son on TBS, and he's been on The Tonight Show 10 times. Last fall, his film, The Opening Act, debuted. He wrote and directed it based on his own experience of trying to break into stand-up comedy. Welcome, Steve. Thank you for having me, Amy. I appreciate it. Writing and directing an autobiographical film is a really personal effort. What's the most important thing about this film for you? Uh, the most important thing about the film for me personally is that it, it eventually makes money so I can make another film. <laughs> but, <laughs> but I think ultimately I wanted to write a film about stand-up comedy and, and have comics be proud of it that people realize what it's truly like to be a, a working comic, you know, every weekend in these comedy clubs. We all see the Netflix hour specials or like somebody on the Tonight Show. But ultimately to get there, you got to slug it out. You got to get on the road and you got to go to these comedy clubs. And I just wanted the most realistic um, representation of that experience and journey. And I thought, what better way than to start at the very beginning when everything's fresh and new and you're kind of fish out of water. Jimmy O. Yang, who plays the lead in the film, is himself a comedian and a writer, also Asian-American. I wonder what it was like to work with him to bring your vision forward. I'll tell you right now, he was great. So professional. There's kind of two conduits, I believe, on a set, right? There's your director and then there's your lead character. And they really can establish the tone on set. And Jimmy, thank God, is such an amiable, really down to earth, but extremely professional uh, performer. So when he showed up, he knew all his lines. He was off book. He was ready to go. He's there to work. At the end of the day, we both knew, well, look, we're making a film about stand-up comedy. This should be fun. And that was kind of the tone on set. I couldn't have asked for anybody better than Jimmy because there's there's very few stand-up comedians that are great actors and there's very few stand-up comedians that are Asian and are actors that are working. So it, it all kind of worked out. Do you feel like this film is among the best that captures the reality today of what it's like to be a stand-up comedian? Yeah, I mean, I don't want to pat myself on the back, but I do think it is the best film about stand-up comedy. I do think it's the best because there's a lot of inside baseball in it, but ultimately it's such a relatable film in the fact that stand-up comedy happens to be the goal that the individual is pursuing. I mean, this could have been about baking, could have been being the best architect, but I knew so much inside baseball about stand-up comedy, and that's what I wanted to make a film about. And when I have all the comics that are in the film, like Bill Burr and Neil Brennan, Russell Peters and Whitney Cummings and Angela Johnson and Cedric the Entertainer, it's like when we did the screenings for the cast and all of them said the same three things to me afterwards. I loved it. It was great. And I can't wait to see my therapist on Monday because you just re-triggered all these horrible memories from my first few years of stand-up comedy. It's like, I think we we're onto something. And it comes out and you see like on Rotten Tomatoes, it's in the 80s and the audience scores in the 80s. It's like, all right, I think that it does resonate. But from the comedy community, that's where I've heard the most positive words. And that to me gave me the impression that, okay, now I can go out and say it. <laughs> It has to be really gratifying because you have a really remarkable, the folks that brought your words to life. It's a really remarkably good cast. It was so much easier to have comics as opposed to actors because with all the comedians, I could tell them, okay, this is the radio scene. You know what it's like to do radio in the morning. You know how awful it is. So they all knew it. 
they all knew the score. They've been through that routine themselves so many times. So and I didn't have to do much coaching before we would shoot any of the scenes. Do you think there are more narrative-based films in the works for you? Will you, will you try this again? I, I certainly would love to try it again. I, I don't think I would have had the success I had if not for the documentary I did before this called Always Amazing. It's about this comedian, the amazing Jonathan. So basically, I learned a lot of story beats from that experience and then relaying that into this. But then working with Vince Vaughn and Peter Billingsley, they're, they're enormous fans of Joseph Campbell and A Hero of a Thousand Faces and basically, you know, disseminating centuries of storytelling. That kind of became embedded in me. And it was something, to be honest with you, Dr. Bank at Kent State in the theater department was trying to impress upon me in my 20s, but I was more, more <laughs> interested in going to raise and downtown and, and drinking than, than paying attention. And only in my later years did, I was like, oh my God, I was, I was taught this earlier on in my career at Kent, but I just didn't pay attention. Maybe I wasn't, I wasn't ready to hear it, but now for sure I am, um, I'm applying all those things into lessons learned and about to pitch a film uh, tomorrow. So we'll see what happens. Yeah. Oh, that's wonderful. Oh, thank you. When you tried stand-up comedy for the first time, uh, I think you said that you just couldn't wait to try it again, that you were hooked. How old were you when you first stepped onto a stage and did stand-up? Is it still like that for you now? No, it definitely is not like that <laughs> these days. I was I was 22 and I always tell people it was like the first time I had sex. It was quick. I cried afterwards and I couldn't wait to do it again. So that's kind of like how it felt. And I really did think that. I really did think I'm going to do this the rest of my life. I just instantly fell in love with it. So those first seven years, I was a comic in New York City at the Comedy Cellar every night, Comic Strip in Gotham, all those esteemed clubs. Like, Stand-up to me was more than just stand-up. It was like a girl I was infatuated with and I couldn't wait to see her again that night. And I couldn't wait to call her. And I, I, I was kind of obsessed with stand-up my first seven years, I would say. So I learned a lot um, from it. But now it's been 23 years being a stand-up comedian and I'm a lot more comfortable with it. But I, I got to tell you, I got to a point pre-pandemic where I was taking it for granted and it was becoming a job. And I was kind of, I never phoned in a show, but I was just like, I wasn't feeling as inspired by it. And then I had an incident happen to me in Dallas, Texas, Dallas, Texas. There was a kid in the front row with his mother and he was, he looked like he was 18 and I was just dumping on this kid for being 18 and out with his mommy on a Saturday night. How dare you, you should be going out and partying and meeting girls. And I was just dumping on this kid and he took it and he was laughing. And I finished the show and I went to the bar across the street from the club and the mom was there with her son. And the mom came up to me and said, you know, my son Tanner loved the show. And I said, thank you for being such great sports. Can I buy you guys a drink? And she said, you know, my son, he's had eight open heart surgeries since he was nine years old. Oh, wow. And tonight he just wanted to laugh. And I could get emotional thinking about it, you know. And, uh, and he just wanted to laugh. And I got to talk to him and we still keep in touch. But that was the moment where my whole occupation began to recalibrate. And I thought, you know what? You're, you're so selfish. You're taking this for granted. There's somebody in that crowd that came here consciously or subconsciously, they needed to laugh and they want to get away from things. They want to get away from problems. And there's so many problems these days. And I thought, this is a really special occupation. Don't take it for granted. That was kind of a special moment in my career. And I'll, one I'll never forget. That's really powerful. People really have needed 
reasons to smile, reasons to laugh, reasons to sort of yeah. get out of all of the, the difficult things that I think people have been struggling with. Very true. I think that with the pandemic, recession, racial tensions, political divisiveness, like governors across the country need to know that comedy is an essential business. The few clubs that have been open, they've been more packed than ever. And I think in times like this, people do want to laugh. I was in New York City on September 11th, and I remember the clubs closing down. And I just thought, oh, my God, I'm going to have to get a real job. It's over. Like, this is all over. What a great ride. And the Comedy Cellar was the first club to open, I believe, a week after 9-11. And clubs were packed after that. And I realized comedy will always be needed. It's always essential because comics are the conduit for everything we're all experiencing the frustrations with the media, the frustrations with politicians, the frustrations with each other and social media and cancel culture and every other thing that's going on. When we go to our phone and feel dismayed, you want to throw it across the room because you feel like life is spiraling out of control. Comics are the ones that can take all of it, you know, have it culminate in maybe a two or three minute bit where you're relating to that and going, yes, this individual gets it and now I can laugh about it. And laughter is the best medicine. It's been said for for centuries, right? So I think comics are definitely needed these days. And I know you're, you talked about uh, that you're continuing uh, pursuing film. Have, have you felt like you've been able to do other forms of comedy while things have been so disrupted now with the pandemic? I thought, look, at the end of the day, at some point, this is going to be over, right? And I've been somebody who's been on the road since I was, you know, 22. And I just thought, I'm going to spend as much time as I can with my family. I really want to appreciate these days with my kids and my wife, because at some point, it's going to go back to norm. So I just thought, enjoy every second, spend every second you can with them, because eventually you're going to pack your suitcase and being Columbus in a strip mall eating chicken fingers and doing three shows a night <laughs> on a Saturday. So so enjoy it. And I, I really did. I, I lived it to the max. But now I'm kind of like a, a, an athlete that comes out of retirement to spend time with his family. And then six months later, it's like, bring the jersey back from the rafters. Let's go back to work because I can't <laughs> stand them anymore. <laughs> so, And I wonder, too, do you do you feel, you know, I've even the way people have responded to Asian Americans, right? There's been a lot of sure. really hateful and terrible rhetoric and instances. How, how have you sort of navigated all of that? You know, a- Asian Americans finding more visibility, unfortunately, for the wrong reasons uh, with all these hate crimes. Me personally, that's been going on for, for decades. It's been going on. I think under the prism now where everybody's a victim and we can shine a light on, you know, social justice and all this stuff, I don't think the stats are any different today than they were 10, 15, 20 years ago. I think it, it's good that it's getting notoriety and hopefully it'll curb it. But I think everybody has hardships in life. Every tribe has its hardships. And I think that over the course of time, maybe shining a light on it will make us feel closer than feeling further apart. Me personally, as someone who's of Korean and Irish descent, these days, everybody's getting more and more tribal and we're getting further away from what unites us. And I think that we need to stay united. I think that, you know, the last election, Russia was trying to divide us. And then this past election, we took the ball and ran. It's like, all right, we'll divide us. Thank you very much, Russia. (laughs) So I think these days it's like, guys, still think of e pluribus unum, out of many one. The flag is the band that brings us all together. Don't run away from it. Don't try to burn it. Let's try to recalibrate it. Let's try to make each other appreciate one another more. And I'm hoping that that we can swing the pendulum back the other way and and um, find respect and love for for our neighbors. 
Well, it sounds like a nice uh, way to end this. Thank you for taking the time to talk with us today. We appreciate it. Thank you very much. And please have a nice frosty mug of beer for me at Ray's or Water Street Tavern and <laughs> think of me. And I, I honestly can't wait to uh, get back to Kent at some point because every time I play the, the hilarities down in Cleveland, I make it a point to get out there to Kent and see how it's blossoming. And uh, I got to see a black squirrel every now and then, right? We welcome you back anytime. <laughs> That's right. Okay. Thanks, Steve. Thank you for taking the time to talk with us today. We appreciate it. You got it. Well, thank you guys. We've been talking with Steve Byrne, stand-up comedian and now film writer and director and a graduate of Kent State University. Elevations is produced by Joe Gunderman and John Nungesser. I'm Amy Reynolds, Dean of Kent State's College of Communication and Information. Join us every Saturday morning on 89.7 and hear this and past interviews at wksu.org slash elevations.